Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, October 12th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, we've got a new war on cash credit card. Square is taking its relationship with Bitcoin to the next level. And in case you hadn't heard, it's earnings palooza eve, people. The banks start reporting tomorrow. And we've got a couple of thoughts. Joining me this week, as always, certified financial planner, it's Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Hey, good to see everybody. Hope you had a nice weekend. It's been rainy in South Carolina, but Good weekend, nevertheless. Good weekend. Got some good football in there. It's October. Fall is in the air. This this kicks off a really nice stretch of the year, I think. You know, I mean, you got October, November, December, three fun holidays, a lot of good food to eat. You know, you build a fire or two here. And I mean, it's, it's, I I like this time of year a lot. Me too. I think fall is my favorite if I had to pick a, pick a season. Well, let's hope it just continues to be a good fall, and let's hope everybody out there is uh, staying happy and healthy. Um, you know, it, it seems like we're hopefully closer closer to the end of, of all this chaos, uh, but, you know, we just keep on keeping on. Uh, Matt, we uh, were talking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago when, when we were discussing PayPal and all of the different types of things that PayPal has been doing with the business, the honey acquisition, the different things it's doing in, in regard to digital and mobile wallet and whatnot. And, and PayPal uh, came out with some news here recently in regard to the Venmo side of the business. Uh, the, the company, they're introducing a Venmo credit card. It's, it's something that will be in partnership with Synchrony Bank, which is is obviously a longtime partner of PayPal's. Uh, Venmo, as we know, is a, is a part of PayPal's business when they made that Braintree acquisition. Um, it, you know, it's a credit card. I know this probably isn't a big driver for the business, at least today, but in reading through all of the nuts and bolts of this deal, of this, of this uh, product here, I, I really do like the move. It feels like it creates yet another reason to be in that PayPal universe. Yeah, well, for one, I think this is a win for Synchrony before we actually get into PayPal. Well, I like that uh, angle too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, Synchrony is, um, as you know, they're the, the big store credit card company. And they were the issuer, of, they're the issuer of the PayPal credit card. But being honest, Venmo's cooler than just PayPal. It, it yeah. just is. Um, <laughs> and this card, what, what really struck me about the card was the, the rewards structure. Um, it, it's the, it's a 3% cash back rate in a one, one of eight spending categories. But the cool thing about it is it's whatever spending category you use most. It's not like these cards, it's not like the rotating categories or where you can only get the best rate on gas and groceries if you don't even use the card for that. Yeah. And they're not like trying to push you into some sort of consumer behavior. They're just rewarding you for your, for your behavior that you just kind of do every day. Right, and it's the it's the, you know three percent back on your most used category, two percent back on the category you use the second most, and just looking at it, it's groceries, bills and utilities, health and beauty, gas, entertainment, dining and nightlife, transportation and travel. So if you get the Venmo credit, if you want a credit card that gives you three percent back on travel, get the Venmo card and use it exclusively for travel. Yeah, um, it gives you it's a lot of optionality for the customer, which is which is really nice, and I I think that's going to be the edge. So I. I think this is a win both for Venmo users and for Synchrony. 
Yeah, I, I tend to agree, and it's it's a Visa card. If if we didn't mention that, so, I mean, those are the three players in that value chain, so to speak. You've got Visa, Synchrony, and PayPal. Um, the other thing I found interesting about this card, and it this this sort of couples with the with PayPal's recent tie up with CVS, right? They they recently forged a relationship with CVS to to display the the QR code in in CVS stores. And you know, the QR code it's I mean, it, it's yet another way to really implement that mobile payment system, right? I mean, that's that's where you can actually scan that QR code and, and it it makes things essentially it makes it makes things operate more quickly, right? I mean, you, you get from point A to point B. I think just a little bit more quickly. Um, and in, in you know, in, in the case of the card, that they're going to actually put the QR code on the front of the physical credit card. I mean, the physical credit card still has a place in this world. I mean, I, I know that some people like to think, oh, I can just pay with my phone. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you're going to pay for something, you're going to pay with your phone or you're going to pay with your card. But either way, you've got to get something out to make that payment, right? There's still that point of friction. So, I mean, we've seen where Amazon is trying to fiddle around with, you know, being able to just kind of show your hand, right? They wave your hand and make that payment. And and hopefully that's technology that that continues to develop and, and uh, you know one day maybe take mainstream adoption. But we're not there yet, obviously. But but I do feel like having that QR code that's something that's very much in touch with the younger audience that uses Venmo to begin with, which kind of goes back to that point that you made. I mean, I know that was a little bit tongue in cheek, but really it was spot on. Venmo is really, I think, perceived as being cooler than than, than the PayPal brand. It is for sure, and and the QR codes definitely help. It's it makes things easier. Like for the for example, if you're paying the bill and you're with six of your friends, you take your Venmo credit card out to pay the bill. They all take their phones out, scan your QR code, and send you money. Exactly. It's it, it this way. You don't have to you know physically pull up your QR code while you're trying to pay the check with your credit card. It's just you know it it, it makes things less complicated, especially like you said for for today's consumers. I mean. I don't even know if I have six friends anymore, but back when I did, <laughs> splitting the bill, <laughs> splitting the bill was was it was a chore. You had to like, you know sit there and everyone had to get change, and it was it was a pain. Um, but and this kind of simplifies an already simplified process by Venmo even a step further. I think center of controversy there are you, Matt? You just uh, you know scaring <laughs> those friends away, are you? No, did you have friends when you had a four and a two year old? I, I I mean I certainly don't. Uh, I mean, I yeah, I guess that's a good point. I guess technically I have them. I just don't really see, yeah, there, see there them as go. often as I do. But you know, you get to that, you get down the road. They get a little bit older, and they they can become a little <laughs> bit more self sufficient, and life uh, life kind of takes a little bit of a turn back into that direction that you're more familiar with. So, you know, just, just hang in, <laughs> hang in there. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about Square because this, you know, this is funny is I didn't really, we didn't plan this, but this really did turn out to be kind of a war on cash themed um, show here. You know, you've got PayPal with the Visa credit card. Now we're talking about Square. This is a little bit of a different story here. And, and I want you to really I want you to, to to convince me this is a this is a big deal because I'm not really sure that it is. But but the fact of the matter is that Square has uh, taken its relationship, its belief in Bitcoin to the next level. Not a surprise. We know Jack Dorsey's um, a big crypto evangelist. We know he believes in that, and it's a way to democratize finance. Um, but but now, I mean, Square is going to hold. I think it's fifty million dollars uh, worth of Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Is this really a big deal, though? Eh, kind of. I'm going to make a very unpopular statement right now. 
Square's interest in Bitcoin is my least favorite part of the company. Ah, <laughs> um, I, mean, I, I, I think I'd agree with you there. I think I actually agree with you there. I mean, as an investor, I, I mean, I I like to say that I bought Square before it was cool to buy Square. I mean, I got it you know right after the IPO when everyone hated the 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 idea of the that it was going to go anywhere. Um, but anyway, the the fifty million dollars of Bitcoin it's roughly one percent of Square's total assets. So this isn't an insignificant amount of money that they're stashing in in Bitcoin. I mean. This is money that was, you know, sitting on in cash anyway on their balance sheet. So it's just kind of moving from it would be the same in my mind right now if they said we're going to hold 50 million dollars in euro on the balance sheet. Um it, but it does kind of add a next step to their interest in Bitcoin. We know that they um that Square allowed people to start buying Bitcoin through the Cash App in 2018. Um since then they they launched a Square crypto division that kind of focuses on on solving Bitcoin related issues. Um, there's, they're participating in a few other nonprofit initiatives when it comes to crypto. Um, but it's always been more of a business function, not that Square was directly investing in it. You know, they were letting their users buy Bitcoin. They were trying to figure out how best to use cryptocurrency to go to, to solve future problems. They didn't actually think of it as an investment. This is maybe the biggest investor I know of. That or the biggest company I know of that's actually calling Bitcoin an investment. So I wonder. I think about um, several years back when Bitcoin really was just just starting to to gain headline share. There, we're talking about the big challenges uh, for Bitcoin between the two big challenges as as a a medium of exchange and a store of value. And I mean, you could see there was there was. There were hurdles to clear on both sides there. Now, I, I think that the the medium of exchange hurdle has. I'm still not convinced. I mean, I don't know the the mass mass majority of people out there aren't, aren't using Bitcoin to buy anything. Um, it, it is. It does seem to me though that it's starting to make its case a little bit more as a store of value. I mean, this to me for Square strikes me as more of a hedging strategy than maybe anything else and maybe it's a way to you know gain a little bit more headline share maybe it's a way for Jack Dorsey to get folks to believe a little bit more in the merits the potential of, of cryptocurrency you know Bitcoin whatnot um, so maybe you know maybe it's it's a multi-serving uh, move there but but it does seem to me at least, it seems to bolster the argument that Bitcoin does hold a place in that store of value argument. Yeah, and I would say over the last year or so, the price of Bitcoin has stabilized significantly. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago when you know one month it would be worth you know four thousand, the next month it would be twenty thousand, the next month it would be three thousand. Who wants to store value in something that's going to do that? Well, yeah, that's exactly right. But Bitcoin's been roughly ten thousand dollars for a pretty long time now. Um, as as I mean, give or take. I mean, it fluctuates just like any type of currency. But now it's moving more like it's behaving more like a currency rather than you know just a crazy speculative asset. Um, so if in that regard, I could also say it's more of a store of value. That's why I say right now this move to put fifty million dollars in Bitcoin to me isn't that much different than them putting it in euro or something like that from a financial point of view because now the values become a whole lot more predictable. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, as we mentioned at the top of the show, it is Earnings Palooza Eve, and that is officially a holiday, people. I mean, like, you got to <laughs> know, four times a year, 
Earnings Palooza Eve is something we celebrate. It's exciting. We, we, get, we get amped up for this because it means we have about a month ahead of us to not only dig into all of our favorite businesses, but we're going to have fun stories to talk about as well. And, and that's, that's always, you know, for investor nerds like us, I mean, that, that really is, that, that's, that's nirvana, so to speak, right? We're just at one with everything uh, once Earnings Palooza hits. But, um, you know, first up here is, is, is Earnings Palooza does kick off. It's, it's really the big banks that get it started. And so for us here on the financial show, that's a point where we can talk about what, uh, you know, what, what, what we're looking for from from these banks as they report earnings. And it's been a difficult time, obviously, for banks, uh, particularly smaller banks, I, I would say, just from, from the sense that uh, you know the interest rate environment is, is so, I mean, it, it, it's almost non-existent. Interest rates are so low. Um, it, it, at least big banks are big, and they can, they can you know, offset some of those challenges with their scale. Um, but you know, the, the banks that we typically focus on as these, as these earnings reports start rolling out, Matt, we talk about Wells Fargo. We talk about Bank of America, which I know you're a big fan of. Goldman Sachs, another one we talk a lot about on this show. Um, what, are some of the, what are some of the things that you're looking for from these banks as these reports start rolling out this week? Well, one, just as a general theme, it's not as much about interest rates right now as it is about loan losses. Um, banks can make money in low interest environments. I mean, when you think if you go for an auto loan at, say, Wells Fargo right now, it's not going to be 0%. It's going to be, you know, you're still going to pay them, you know, three, four, or 5% interest depending on your credit. So th- they could still make money in low interest environments. Remember, rates were around zero from the end of the financial crisis for the next, you know, what, six, seven years, and, and banks were making money. So that's not the big issue. The issue is how will the economic fallout from the COVID pandemic impact loan losses? Um, just in the second quarter alone, I'll start with Wells Fargo. In the second quarter alone, Wells Fargo set aside over $8 billion in anticipation of loan losses. Now, at the time, remember the $600 unemployment boost was still in effect. Pretty much everyone thought that would be extended in some form. It's yet to be done. Um, so that eight billion might not be enough if if things go wrong. Um, unemployment has has decreased quicker than we would have anticipated. But at the same time, the help coming to the people who are unemployed has gone away. So the real key thing to watch, especially with Wells Fargo, which Wells Fargo is purely a commercial bank for the most part. They have a small investment banking operation, but for the most part, they make money off of consumers and businesses. Um, So watch the loan loss ratio. I think their net charge off rate was 0.46% in the second quarter. That's a key number to watch and see how it it ticks up in the third quarter, because now we're going to really start seeing what the economic effects of the pandemic have been. There are some effects, but it's a question of just how bad it's going to happen. And Remember, Wells Fargo was the only of the big banks to slash their dividend recently. Yeah, that's right. Um, they need profits to to bring it back. Um, the, I think the, the formula has to do with the last four quarters of earnings. Wells Fargo produced a pretty big loss in the second quarter. So, I mean, normally I don't pay that much attention to the bottom line number. But in Wells Fargo's case, it's kind of important because it, it's where their dividends come from. Um, and now more than ever, now now they really have to be able to justify their dividends. So that's Wells Fargo, what I'm watching. Uh, Goldman Sachs is kind of the other end of the banking spectrum, meaning that it's almost exclusively an investment bank. There's some consumer banking, you know, like the Marcus Platform, Apple Card, things like that. But Goldman Sachs, for the most part, is an investment bank. 
And investment banks do better when the market's kind of going crazy, like it was in the second quarter. Yeah, the second quarter was their second highest revenue ever um, for a quarter. It was their highest investment banking revenue ever for a quarter. And we've seen a lot of IPOs here recently too. That 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 activity has picked back up a little bit. I mean, that that you know that that can't be bad for a bank like Goldman Sachs. No, and that's part of the investment banking revenue. They had record record equity underwriting revenue, which is IPOs, um, in the in the second quarter. Uh, trading revenue was was the highest it's been since the financial crisis. Now, I'm expecting Goldman's earnings to kind of take a breather during the third quarter. The third quarter was not nearly as crazy as the second one was when it comes to how the market was reacting. Um, you know, thankfully. The, the April and, and May drama in the market only happened once. <laughs> um, yeah. So that didn't happen. That didn't repeat itself in the third quarter to any meaningful extent. So I'm expecting the volatility related benefits to kind of taper off. But as you just mentioned, the one thing I do want to watch is the IPO or the, the equity and debt underwriting even of the, the investment banking division should be pretty strong. So those are like the two ends of the spectrum. And then Bank of America is a nice combination of the two. Nothing really particular I'm watching, but a lot of the big banks, Bank of America is not the only one. JP Morgan Chase is another uh, Citigroup that are have a nice combination of consumer and investment banking. So I'd like to see how those really hold up. Yeah, you know, Bank of America is one. I mean, I feel like we talk about this every quarter, but it just it never it just never ceases to amaze me how how the conversation over time has changed with this company. I mean, it, it went from I mean just a pariah to really one of the leaders in the space in just a short period of time. I mean, uh, it, it did feel like every day years ago that every every day there was a new headline that was that was not working in their favor. And um and, and you you know, you fast forward to today, uh clearly the focus on the consumer remains uh the presence in investment banking is 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 strong and and then it doesn't hurt their cause that Wells Fargo has kind of taken their place as the major financial institution that just seems to just step in it day after day now, right? <laughs> I mean, that's that's. It seems like they've they've really kind of traded places. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really weird how the orders kind of shifted. If you, <laughs> yeah. when you think of the big four banks, it used to be J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo battling for that number one position, and you you could usually make the case it was Wells Fargo when it came to profitability and efficiency and things like that. So those were the one and two, and then you had Citigroup and Bank of America kind of battling for the 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 last place, and now Citigroup's a firm third place, and Wells Fargo's all the way in fourth. And I would say it's J.P. Morgan and Bank of America kind of kind of jockeying for that first place spot. I mean, J.P. Morgan Chase is is a more profitable and efficient institution than Bank of America right now. They're also a lot more expensive when it comes to like price to book. So, um, I mean, I. I can make the case that Bank of America is the best investment in, in of the big four banks right now. Well, but, I, I, yeah, I think a lot of people would listen. But on Friday, when we've heard from all of these big banks, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, Wells Fargo could have lost fifteen billion dollars or three billion dollars. We don't know, and that and if it was only three billion dollars, that means they set aside five billion too many, and <laughs> and and, and, it, and that goes back into investors' pockets at some point. So I mean it's 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 too early. There's a lot that could happen this week. It's going to be an excite. Normally, exciting and bank earnings don't really go in the same sentence. But, <laughs> well, but we're, this changing week, the, <laughs> we're changing the conversation. <laughs> we're changing we're changing it up here. Right. So it, it, it'll be an interesting week. 
what do you think? You know, we we saw the news last week. Speaking of, of of big banks, and one that really we don't talk about a whole heck of a lot, but I think you know some news that was at least noteworthy here: uh, Morgan Stanley acquiring Eaton Vance, and um, this this you know, we talk a lot about consolidation in the space. I mean, this is certainly an effort from Morgan Stanley to boost that investment wing of the business. I mean, Eaton Vance holds somewhere in the neighborhood of five hundred billion dollars in assets under management. I mean, this is a I mean, you know, from the perspective of Morgan Stanley, not the biggest deal in the world. I mean, you know, Morgan Stanley is a considerably larger business, but it's it's not it's not just some little bolt-on acquisition either. Any any thoughts there? Well, I, I, I not to brag or anything, but a couple of weeks ago when you said what trend are you watching in the in the rest of 2020 in banking, I said consolidation in the brokerage space. Well, then brag a little bit by all <laughs> means, Matt. That's one of the reasons why we're here, right? Talk well, your own book. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mention Eaton Vance. I mean, I, that was one I really didn't think was going to get bought out. Um, I, I thought I thought someone would acquire like a Robin Hood or something like that to get you know get more techie, I guess you'd say, and appeal to the millennial crowd. Um, but and remember, Morgan Stanley just acquired E Trade, like that just happened. So um, this they're really making a big push to to scale up their business. And from that perspective, when you combine their existing clientele, which off the top of my head, I don't know how many how much assets Morgan Stanley already had, but I have to say it's over a trillion. Um, and then combine that with all the E-Trade retail brokerage assets and the half trillion dollars of Eaton Vance wealth management assets, all of a sudden you have a much more scaled and potentially profitable business. So um, I, I, I said a, that a couple episodes ago, like I mentioned, that consolidation was something to watch. And the reason is because you know fees are coming down. The way you're going to make your money is through scale and efficiency. Um, among other, I mean, brokers have other ways they make money, but I mean, even though TD Ameritrade's commissions went to zero, that didn't mean they were going broke. Um, so, but this is, this is going to be a, a long tailed trend, I think in the space, I, th- I still think somebody's going to step in and acquire Robinhood. Um, I think if I, if I, yeah, I think I would probably put money on that as well. Um, at, at some point, I mean, there were a couple of things. I mean, to your point there, I mean, this this acquisition, Morgan Stanley is going to oversee close to four and a half trillion dollars of, of, of client assets across all of its uh, wealth management divisions, which is just that's obviously an astounding number. I think it's interesting too. This will give them a, a bit more of a presence in the ESG space, right? That's obviously a direction where a lot of these firms are headed. Uh, a, a bigger focus on ESG investing, and rightly. So I think I think that is going to be something that just becomes more important as time goes on for investors. Uh, but then there was a, a telling quote from from Morgan Stanley CEO James Corman. He said in an interview, "I quote: It was sort of obvious if we didn't do this, someone else would have." And uh, I, you know that that really I think says it all right there. They've been thinking about this for a while and really kind of came to the conclusion that this deal had to happen. Yeah, I mean it was kind of the same in my mind. The same reason Schwab acquired Ameritrade. Um, just because, like you said, if, if they didn't do it, someone else would have. It was it's a a powerful franchise. They were one of the in in according to many lists, the top rated broker um, in terms of functionality and stuff like that. So it's just, when when commissions went to zero, it's just a matter of time before there's this kind of like land grab for all the smaller firms, um, including the ones that were already doing zero commission, like Robinhood. Um, I, I I could see a company like Square buying them out. Yeah, yeah, and we talked about that before for sure. Um, or even PayPal, maybe maybe they they do brokerage in their Venmo app. Yeah, you know that would be an interesting idea there because that certainly would pivot away from what PayPal has been so focused on, wouldn't it? Yeah, but I mean, Venmo. I mean, I wouldn't call PayPal and Square direct competitors in most ways, but in terms of the Venmo and Cash App. 
thing, they're pretty close. Yeah. Um, in, yeah. in terms of, I, I, I can't tell for a second if that was you or me. No, that's not me. That's that's my dog. Sorry, folks. That's well, not, not you personally. <laughs> the the uh, <laughs> the challenges of working from home. Anyway, let's uh, let's before we wrap up here, Matt. One thing I did want to bring up because this is this is not really directly related to Berkshire Hathaway, but this was a headline that hit this morning, which I thought was pretty fascinating. Um, it, it, Dillard's, I mean, it, the the old department store from the mall. It, that that I mean we we talked about the challenges malls are facing. I mean it, it was very interesting to see this news that Ted Weschler, who's an investment manager for for of course Berkshire Hathaway, bought a massive stake in Dillard's and Dillard's uh, stock up up around forty percent right now in this news. Now it's it's not a Berkshire Hathaway investment though, from what I can understand. This is a a Ted Weschler investment, correct? It is, and it's that that's what makes it all the more surprising. I wouldn't really put it past Buffett to do like a deep value play like this. But the, the you know, Ted Weschler and Todd Combs, the two investment managers, they're the ones who, you know, buy Amazon and Snowflake and, and Stoneco and, and those type of companies recently, you know, they're, they're not the, they're not buying Coca-Cola and Amex like Buffett is. They're buying, you know, the, the tech plays. So it kind of surprised me what I, I mean, it's definitely a value play um, in my mind. The, the thing that I'm, I mean, I, obviously no one knows what he's thinking, but I one thing that came to my mind is that maybe it's kind of like the Best Buy effect. Um, when you think of Best Buy 10 years ago, there were they had Circuit City competing against them, H.H. Gregg, a few other big ones. What happened? The weaker competitors went out of business. And even though Best Buy was competing with Amazon and e-commerce, there was still some need for a physical electronic store presence. So they picked up all that market share that, that Circuit City and H.H. Gregg left behind. And now they're that much stronger as a result. So Dillard's is, I mean, no department store is terribly strong right now. Um, but I would put Dillard's in a, I mean, obviously in a category above like JCPenney, which is already bankrupt, but even above like a, like a Macy's or, or, or some of the other ones. But I mean, Dillard's seems to be doing better than all of its peers. So I'm thinking maybe he's thinking it might be like a last man standing type of type of play. I don't know. What what are your thoughts on that? I it just to me it, it's yeah, it's it's difficult to really fully reconcile. I mean, I I always look at something like this and I feel like, you know what, these guys have access to a lot more information and and they're certainly very talented, very smart investors. There's clearly something there that 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 we maybe can't see based on based on information that they have. Um, I, I don't know that. I mean, let's. It, it reminds me of, of the Buffett Bank of America deal, right? This is probably something. This is this is something where they're able to do something through this through this investment that your typical retail investor probably wouldn't be able to to, to accomplish. Um, and maybe right. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised doesn't. if he got a board seat or something like that out of the deal. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and I mean, and maybe that is something. Maybe that is something to come. But I, I think you know, it's 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 easy to look at that big absolute number and think that's wow, that's a big absolute number. But remember. I mean, they're dealing with big numbers every day, and so so for them, I mean, it, it's it's not it's not necessarily as, as crazy of, of a uh, at least on the on the on the outside, it's not necessarily as crazy of, of a looking at investment as maybe some might think. It is it is it's it's a really difficult time for for those for those department stores and malls and, and retailers right now. So maybe this is a hey, 
you know, trying to buy a, a good operator in a bad time. And, and, I, and I certainly appreciate that style of investing and that way of thinking. So um, it, it'll be really fun to watch that play out and, uh, and to see how, how that ends up working. I, I, don't, I don't think Dillard's is some kind of a Sears story, though. I think there's, there's probably some value there that, uh, that, that he could end up uh, helping, to, you know, helping to bring out a little bit more value. Well, I mean, at the same reason, that's the same, that's the same reason I bought Simon Property Group. It's not because I necessarily think the malls are that malls are a great business right now. It's that they're the best in breed, and I think that it's going to consolidate around them, and they're going to kind of be the the wave of the future when this is all said and done. Not necessarily that I think the mall business is a great one to be in right now, just like the department store business is is clearly not a great one to be in right now. But I don't know, maybe um. Maybe he knows something there, like you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I tend to approach it from that perspective. And and uh, just an update here to confirm, apparently that was my dog taking the other side of the consolidation argument there, the consolidation case. So I, I don't know, I'm with you. I, I am I am bullish on the consolidation case. Apparently Wally is not. We'll see how that plays out. I have a feeling that we're going to be rubbing that in Wally's face here soon enough, though. But Matt, I think that's gonna uh, that's, that's gonna take care of it. I think for for us this week, and uh, I appreciate as always you taking the time to to uh, tune in and to join us on Zoom and uh, the show here. It's always fun catching up with you, and I'm really excited to see how all this stuff plays out for uh, earnings season. And I feel like we know exactly what we'll be talking about next Monday. I I can already see it happening. <laughs> Who knows All what's right. going to happen, but it, it, I, know, I know what the topic will be. We will be watching closely. Have a great week, uh, buddy. And for us, that's going to do it uh, this week, folks. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. You can also drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. Uh, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Music